Chapter Six of Outwitting the Hun: My Escape from a German Prison Camp by Pat O'Brien. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: A Leap for Liberty. I had been in prison at Courtrai nearly three weeks when, on the morning of September ninth, I and six other officers were told that we were to be transferred to a prison camp in Germany. One of the guards told me during the day that we were destined for a reprisal camp in Strasbourg. They were sending us there to keep our airmen from bombing the place. He explained that the English carried German officers on hospital ships for a similar purpose, and he excused the German practice of torpedoing these vessels on the score that they also carried munitions. When I pointed out to him that France would hardly be sending munitions to England, he lost interest in the argument. Some days before, I had made up my mind that it would be a very good thing to get hold of a map of Germany, which I knew was in the possession of one of the German interpreters, because I realized that if ever the opportunity came to make my escape, such a map might be of the greatest assistance to me. With the idea of stealing this map, accordingly, a lieutenant and I got in front of this interpreter's window one day, and engaged in a very hot argument as to whether Heidelberg was on the Rhine or not, and we argued back and forth so vigorously that the German came out of his room, map in hand, to settle it. After the matter was entirely settled to our satisfaction, he went back into his room, and I watched where he put the map. When, therefore, I learned that I was on my way to Germany, I realized that it was more important than ever for me to get that map, and, with the help of my friend, we got the interpreter out of his room on some pretext or other, and while he was gone I confiscated the map from the book in which he kept it, and concealed it in my sock underneath my leggings. As I had anticipated, it later proved of the utmost value to me. I got it none too soon, for half an hour later we were on our way to Ghent. Our party consisted of five British officers and one French officer. At Ghent, where we had to wait for several hours for another train to take us direct to the prison in Germany, two other prisoners were added to our party. In the interval we were locked in a room at a hotel, a guard sitting at the door with a rifle on his knee. It would have done my heart good for the rest of my life if I could have got away then and fooled that Hun, he was so cocksure. Later we were marched to the train that was to convey us to Germany. It consisted of some twelve coaches, eleven of them containing troops going home on leave, and the twelfth reserved for us. We were placed in a fourth-class compartment with old hard wooden seats, a filthy floor, and no lights save a candle placed there by a guard. There were eight of us prisoners and four guards. As we sat in the coach we were an object of curiosity to the crowd who gathered at the station. "'Hope you have a nice trip,' one of them shouted sarcastically. "'Drop me a line when you get to Berlin, will you?' shouted another in broken English. "'When shall we see you again?' asked a third. "'Remember me to your friends, will you? You'll find plenty where you're going,' shouted another. The German officers made no effort to repress the crowd. In fact, they joined in the general laughter which followed every sally. I called to a German officer who was passing our window. "'You're an officer, aren't you?' I asked respectfully enough. "'Yes, what of it?' he rejoined. 
"Well, in England," I said, "we let your officers who are prisoners ride first class. Can't you fix it so that we can be similarly treated, or be transferred at least to a second class compartment?" "If I had my way," he replied, "you'd ride with the hogs." Then he turned to the crowd and told them of my request, and how he had answered me, and they all laughed hilariously. This got me pretty hot. "'That would be a damn sight better than riding with the Germans,' I yelled after him. But if he considered that a good joke, too, he didn't pass it on to the crowd. Some months later, when I had the honor of telling my story to King George, he thought this incident was one of the best jokes he had ever heard. I don't believe he ever laughed harder in his life. Before our train pulled out, our guards had to present their arms for inspection, and their rifles were loaded in our presence to let us know that they meant business. From the moment the train started on its way to Germany, the thought kept coming to my head that unless I could make my escape before we reached that reprisal camp, I might as well make up my mind that, as far as I was concerned, the war was over. It occurred to me that if the eight of us in that car could jump up at a given signal and seize those four Hun guards by surprise, we'd have a splendid chance of besting them and jumping off the train when it first slowed down. But when I passed the idea on to my comrades, they turned it down. Even if the plan had worked out as gloriously as I had pictured, they pointed out, the fact that so many of us had escaped would almost inevitably result in our recapture. The Huns would have scoured Belgium till they had got us, and then we would all be shot. Perhaps they were right. Nevertheless, I was determined that no matter what the others decided to do, I was going to make one bid for freedom, come what might. As we passed through village after village in Belgium, and I realized that we were getting nearer and nearer to that dreaded reprisal camp, I concluded that my one and only chance of getting free before we reached it was through the window. I would have to go through that window while the train was going full speed, because if I waited until it had slowed up or stopped entirely, it would be a simple matter for the guards to overtake or shoot me. I opened the window. The guard who sat opposite me, so close that his feet touched mine, and the stock of his gun which he held between his knees occasionally struck my foot, made no objection, imagining no doubt that I found the car too warm, or that the smoke with which the compartment was filled annoyed me. As I opened the window, the noise the train was making as it thundered along grew louder. It seemed to say, you're a fool if you do, you're a fool if you don't, you're a fool if you do, you're a fool if you don't. And I said to myself, the nose have it, and closed down the window again. As soon as the window was closed, the noise of the train naturally subsided, and its speed seemed to diminish, and my plan appealed to me stronger than ever. I knew the guard in front of me didn't understand a word of English, and so, in a quiet tone of voice, I confided to the English officer who sat next to me what I planned to do. "'For God's sake, Pat, chuck it,' he urged. "'Don't be a lunatic. This railroad is double-tracked and rock-ballasted, and the other track is on your side. You stand every chance in the world of knocking your brains out against the rails, or hitting a bridge or a whistling post, and if you escape those, you will probably be hit by another train on the other track. 
You haven't one chance in a thousand to make it." There was a good deal of logic in what he said, but I figured that, once I was in that reprisal camp, I might never have even one chance in a thousand to escape, and the idea of remaining a prisoner of war indefinitely went against my grain. I resolved to take my chance now, even at the risk of breaking my neck. The car was full of smoke. I looked across at the guard. He was rather an old man, going home on leave, and he seemed to be dreaming of what was in store for him rather than paying any particular attention to me. Once in a while I had smiled at him, and I figured that he hadn't the slightest idea of what was going through my mind all the time we had been traveling. I began to cough as though my throat were badly irritated by the smoke, and then I opened the window again. This time the guard looked up and showed his disapproval, but did not say anything. It was then four o'clock in the morning, and would soon be light. I knew I had to do it right then or never, as there would be no chance to escape in the daytime. I had on a trench coat that I had used as a flying coat, and wore a knapsack which I had constructed out of a gas bag brought into Courtrai by a British prisoner. In this I had two pieces of bread, a piece of sausage, and a pair of flying mittens. All of them had to go with me through the window. The train was now going at a rate of between thirty and thirty-five miles an hour, and again it seemed to admonish me as it rattled along over the ties, you're a fool if you do, you're a fool if you don't, you're a fool if you don't, you're a fool if you do, you're a fool if you don't. I waited no longer, standing up on the bench as if to put the bag on the rack, and taking hold of the rack with my left hand, and a strap that hung from the top of the car with my right, I pulled myself up, shoved my feet and legs out of the window, and let go. There was a prayer on my lips as I went out, and I expected a bullet between my shoulders, but it was all over in an instant. I landed on my left side and face, burying my face in the rock ballast, cutting it open and closing my left eye, skinning my hands and shins, and straining my ankle. For a few moments I was completely knocked out, and if they shot at me through the window, in the first moments after my escape, I had no way of knowing. Of course, if they could have stopped the train right then, they could easily have recaptured me. But at the speed it was going, and in the confusion which must have followed my escape, they probably didn't stop within half a mile from the spot where I lay. I came to within a few minutes, and when I examined myself and found no bones broken, I didn't stop to worry about my cuts and bruises, but jumped up with the idea of putting as great a distance between me and that track as possible before daylight came. Still being dazed, I forgot all about the barbed wire fence along the right-of-way, and ran full tilt into it. Right there I lost one of my two precious pieces of bread, which fell out of my knapsack, but I could not stop to look for it then. The one thing that was uppermost in my mind was that for the moment I was free, and it was up to me now to make the most of my liberty. End of chapter 6